0: Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marian Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. This week, the podcast will have two segments. We begin with a discussion of a recent newspaper story about private museums. Then we'll spend a bit more time with Rob Weisberg, CEO of Invaluable, the auction platform. First, let's begin with the private museums. The New York Times has been looking at tax deductions for the wealthy for some time. Reporter Patricia Cohen wrote a story shortly after a Francis Bacon triptych sold for a record $142 million. Cohen revealed how a museum loan was used to mitigate sales tax on that painting. This month, she followed up with a long Sunday story detailing the growth of private museums. There are now 48 of them in the U.S., according to Larry's List, and their use as a means to gain tax advantages. I spoke to Cohen the week after her story ran to ask about the response. Cohen's story was particularly well-balanced. She went out of her way not to mention some of her subject's previous entanglements with the IRS. And yet, there seemed to be one conclusion most readers arrived at.
1: I mean, what I tried to do in that piece, and it was fortunate it ran on a Sunday, so we, I had a lot more space than than normally, uh, you know, uh, kind of daily articles to run. So I was able to get into the nuances, and certainly, I think, um, you know, I it's I'm a news reporter. I, I wasn't trying to, you know, argue one side or the other. I was trying to kind of present as frill as I could the case on both sides. And there is a case on both sides. I will say that the uh, vast majority of the reaction that I personally heard were people who were kind of outraged about um, these private museums getting a tax break. Um, I'm sure that's not the way everyone read it, but – it, just in terms of people who the the kind of comments that were uh, people made publicly on the Times website or emails that I got, uh, it was it was mostly um, people who were upset and, and felt that this was taking advantage of uh, a legal loophole in the law that this was was really airing on one side and not the other.
0: Given that response, is there a likelihood that the rules surrounding private museums might change?
1: It comes down to kind of a judgment call. And, um, you know, as I mentioned in the stories, the guidelines themselves are really vague. And so, um, like a lot of these things, unless an individual gets audited, uh, you know, it's, it's, our system is really based on voluntary compliance for the most part and and the reality is that the IRS budget has been cut significantly and repeatedly over 5 years so as is the case with all of these issues about enforcement, it's its really on a very case-by-case basis. And in terms of any kind of reforms that have been proposed about the tax code, and certainly things that have gotten a lot more attention and generated a lot more outrage, whether it's about, you know, companies locating their headquarters overseas in order to avoid paying taxes, um, the tax code is just you know, mind-shatteringly complex. <laughs> and and um, when people talk about reform, anytime individual reforms come up, it, the response is always, "Well, they should be done in the context of larger, uh, a larger overhaul
0: of the tax code." Congress's inability to tackle corporate taxes makes it highly unlikely that the whole tax code will be overhauled anytime soon. But that's not really Cohen's focus here
1: uh what I was trying to focus on in this story is, is really kind of where do you draw the line. And um, having visited um, a couple of these small private museums, um, including Glenstone, which I just thought was incredible. It, it was a, a wonderful little museum. I think it just raises the question, though, particularly given all of the needs um, that are facing federal government, um, are – these these kind of museums, which really are very limited in the kind of public access they afford worth the tax break they get you know certainly um any of these people could get a tax break if they donate uh a work to the Met or MoMA or you know any of uh giant museums in city centers or even in in smaller towns um The question is just when the access becomes. So limited, it seems to me, just to raise a question about cost and benefits.
0: In her story, Cohen was quick to point out that private museums were the basis of many important public collections, or collections that eventually became public. One case that caused a lot of controversy is the Barnes Collection in Philadelphia, which was moved downtown after a series of court cases,
1: you know, one of the issues that came up in the whole discussion of whether it should be new, it should be moved from its, um, where it was in, in Marion, Pennsylvania, where Albert Barnes uh, dictated in his will um, was the fact that uh, that really limited public access. And that was certainly an issue that the courts looked at um, when deciding whether it should be able to move to downtown Philadelphia. And certainly the number of people who have been able to visit or who have visited the barn since it moved, moved has increased, I think, in its last year, and I, I could be wrong about this because I'm, I'm just thinking about it from memory, but in its last year before it closed, um, Marion it had about 62,000 people. And as I wrote in my story, I think it had uh, about um, 285,000 last year.
0: Readers of Cohen's story raised another concern. Could these private museums be used as a kind of art fund? Under this imagined scenario, collectors would sell works in the museum that had appreciated greatly in value. Proceeds might then be used to buy more art, enhancing the collection for the owner, but without paying any taxes to the government
1: well basically the operated most of these private family, like any family operated foundation um you know is controlled by by the people who've created them who founded them, so certainly you could direct the foundation to buy any art that you want, although as one tax lawyer suggested, you'd actually be better off by um, donating the money to buy the art, which you can then deduct on your taxes, and then getting the foundation to buy the art for you, uh, uh, and you wouldn't have to pay sales tax because it's a nonprofit foundation that's buying it. So there's many ways to manipulate the tax code.
0: And that's the point that Cohen keeps coming back to. This is a nuanced issue. There are very good reasons for collectors to want to seek public benefits
1: you know, what's that old saying like you can uh do well by doing good, um or do good by doing well, uh, which is that there's there there are places certainly where personal interest and public interest um, overlap. And obviously that's kind of a situation where everyone benefits. A lot of collectors end up maybe loaning or donating art to museums, you know, because the upkeep care insurance on that art is really expensive. And so it makes sense for them to um, loan it to a museum.
0: Finally, Cohen recognizes that all of these collectors are passionate about their art. And that their art can be used in many different ways to improve their communities.
1: It it is true, many of these collectors are absolutely devoted, avid art lovers. And um, you know, I, I even I just in my conversation I had with the uh director of the Phillips Collection in Washington, DC, which started um as, you know, Duncan Phillips showing art that he collected in his own home and it eventually turned into this museum, you know, he, he was just an avid collector and he loved art um, and wanted to share it with people. So, I you know, there's definitely a, a mercenary aspect to this, but, but I certainly have, I've interviewed the Rubels, for instance, in Miami, and, and I have no question in my mind about how much they just love art and really want to promote it and share it and, you know, support artists and such. Um, but the difference is their museum, or which they started in downtown Miami, in which many other Miami collectors have uh, followed suit and people know about, is what they did was they uh, essentially transformed what was an old DEA warehouse in a really bad neighborhood, and that actually served to help um you know, kind of revivify that whole neighborhood. They didn't just do it kind of on their private land.
0: We move on to our conversation with Rob Weisberg of Invaluable. It begins with Rob explaining what Invaluable is and how it operates.
2: Sure. So Invaluable is the world's largest online live auction marketplace Um, We connect buyers and sellers through this marketplace uh, of fine decorative arts, antiques, and collectibles, working with uh, some of the top auction houses in the world. So uh, in a nutshell, we connect buyers and sellers and allow internet bidders to bid against the people in the room and premier auction houses.
0: These are mostly small regional auction houses?
2: You know, we work with auction houses of all sizes. I'd say, if you, if you look at the traditional brick and mortar auction industry, uh, and if I stopped most people on the street and said, okay, name five auction houses, uh, most people haven't been exposed to the live auction industry, and they'd name Sotheby's and Christie's and perhaps Phillips or Bonham's. Um, and beyond that, you know, most people would be hard pressed to, uh, to name another auction house. Um, For us, where we really thrive is um, focusing on auction houses of all sizes. If you look at the types of auction houses and and the the distribution of uh, art and collectibles in particular, um, what you see is the vast majority of that merchandise is being sold by by regional houses. So uh, I'm not sure where you'd put a Doyle or a Swan or a Freeman's or an Art Curiel in terms of um, how you would define large or small. Um, All of those are clients of ours, and um, certainly they're all regional, but they have a a global client base.
0: But you're connecting this broad and diverse group of auction houses that vet the material with a larger audience than they can reach on their own.
2: That's absolutely correct. Uh, We do business with um, several thousand auction houses around the world and as a uh, someone who appreciates art either as a collector or a dealer, um, it would have been hard. If you think about uh, the industry as a whole, it's been a, a pretty opaque industry. If you look back even 10 years ago, the way that most consumers engaged with an auction house was they would uh, have a relationship with that auction house, they would receive a paper catalog, they'd be expected to peruse that that paper catalog, Um, find a piece of merchandise that they may be interested in bidding on and then showing up on auction day to submit a bid. Um, That's pretty difficult when you think about that there are more than 25,000 regional auction houses out there. Um, If you were to receive a paper catalog from each and every one of them, you'd fill your house in the very first month with catalogs. And Most consumers aren't interested in the auction house as much as they are um, interested in, in the piece of, of merchandise and the piece of art that's being sold. So if I'm a collector of Andy Warhol's, I want to be notified proactively anytime an Andy Warhol comes up for sale at any auction house around the world. I'm going to be a bit more agnostic as to the auction house and a bit more uh, tied to the fact that it's an original Andy Warhol that's being sold. And so um, the flip side of that is I might collect Mickey Mantle baseball cards or um you know coins or some type of uh of currency or autographs or whatever it is that fuels my passion um to be uh notified when that piece of merchandise comes up for sale uh is a really powerful tool. Essentially we become the personal shoppers for uh these buyers, these passionate collectors uh and these dealers. Uh Notifying them proactively when that piece of merchandise that that diamond in the rough or that needle in the haystack uh becomes available, and then we give them the opportunity to bid on that piece of merchandise uh virtually uh you know come to the door of the auction house uh via the internet, and so you don't have to hop on a plane to fly to Paris and Sydney and London all in the same afternoon if there are three pieces of merchandise you'd like to bid on. Um, that are all of interest to you, that you're passionate about, all of them, uh, all happening on the same day.
0: Now, you have two different relationships, one with eBay and another with a Chinese consortium called Epi, that are meant to bring uh, uh, two vast audiences to your various auction houses, correct?
2: That's correct. I'd say um, the Epi Live deal and the eBay deal are are slightly different in that Epi Live is very much like we are um, in that they uh, aggregate auction houses and aggregate uh demand by bringing more bidders to Epi Live. So in the relationship that we have with Epi they're really feeding both sides of the marketplace. They have relationships with 300 uh of the world's leading uh Chinese auction houses and so through this partnership with EPI, we make those auction houses and their merchandise and their sales available to our bidders in the Western world um, simultaneously, EPI Live brings a whole slew of of Chinese bidders um, who bid in uh, in auction houses in China and give them the opportunity to bid in western auction houses uh, via our platform So in the case of EPI Live, it feeds both the demand side and the supply side. Um, In the case of eBay, um, so eBay uh, came to us, um, expressed an interest in in, uh, exposing our merchandise, our auction house's merchandise to eBay bidders. Um, I would really describe that relationship as we're more the supply while eBay is is the demand. Uh, They have over 140 million active buyers on eBay. Uh, If you look just the art and collectible space, you're talking about nine billion buyers in the art and collectible space. I'm sorry, uh, 45 million buyers, 45 billion buyers in the art and collection space <laughs> um, spending $9 billion a year.
0: So a lot. It's huge. Uh,
2: yeah, the numbers are massive. And so you know, where I where I look at eBay is... Uh, and the partnership that, that we've embarked on, uh, I think it's terrific for eBay. I think it's terrific for buyers as they get uh, exposure to this one-of-a-type, one-of-a-kind merchandise. Um, and I think it's it's a great exposure for the auction houses. You know, going back to the, the earlier part of our conversation. Uh, many many people just uh, standard consumers have not been exposed to the traditional brick and mortar auction industry, and what we 're doing is we're taking uh, traditional brick and mortar auction houses and, and making them much more mainstream by exposing their brand and exposing their merchandise to a much broader audience.
0: Is it having an effect? Are you seeing an increase in sales?
2: so what we 're seeing is um, a higher percentage of sales occurring online versus on the on the auction room floor. Um, We're seeing overall higher average lot value because of the increased demand, uh, much higher sell-through rates. Um, So overall, it's been a a terrific, uh, terrific boom to business for the auction houses that we serve.
0: And is that just seeing the lots listed as you would on eBay normally, or is that live auctions uh, that the viewer can participate in?
2: So on Invaluable, you can see the person on the podium. Um, On uh, eBay and Epi, um, they currently do not support audiovisual. It's something that they're considering doing in the future. But you can see the lot and you can see the the bid increments as they're occurring in real time. And so the way to think about it is if somebody lists their sale with Invaluable, we're essentially simulcasting that auction to Epi and to eBay and we're giving buyers an opportunity to bid in those auctions via their preferred platform. Um, and all of those bids are coming into the auction room floor in real time. Um, and so uh, we're almost playing air traffic control. It's not it's not dissimilar to uh, the way that, that stocks are traded uh, with NASDAQ. In fact, the, the technology works very much in that fashion.
0: And does seeing the auction live have any effect on the bidding?
2: Uh, no. I mean, the the way to think about it is demand is what drives uh, bidding behavior. And so uh, just by the nature of the auction industry, you need at least two to tango. Um, if you don't have at least two folks um, bidding, then in some cases an item will pass if there's not enough demand for it or if it doesn't get to a, a reserve price point. Um, in our case, if if I said to you, Marianne, you you own – your auction house how about if i show up with 10 busloads of people um you'd probably be pretty excited about that and with good reason because if i am bringing 10 busloads of people the the expectation is they're going to see a whole lot more bidding and buying behavior than you would otherwise and so um certainly you can uh, there, there's a, a sense of excitement that happens on the auction room floor, and we, we uh, try to replicate that excitement to the best of our ability in, in the virtual space. Um, and ways that we do that is, is uh, we put audio-visual um, on our platform and give people the opportunity to see that. But there's a certain number of folks out there who also would prefer to remain anonymous. Um, we hear stories of people who go and look at the merchandise at an auction house and then Uh, come home and bid online or, uh, you know, they've got their kid's soccer game. And so they they bid on their mobile device on our our, uh, iPad app while sitting on the sideline of their kid's soccer game. And so there's plenty of opportunity for people to to get excited. Uh, Really what they're excited about is the merchandise. I want this piece, um, you know, much more so than uh, showing up on auction day.
0: Do you have enough data to see...
2: selling over $200 million worth of merchandise online. So I've got plenty of data. Um, we've got more data than you could possibly imagine. In fact, I would I would argue and, and probably argue very successfully that we have more data than anybody else in the world um, around merchandise that's sold at auction and the impact of uh, additional demand on those auction houses. I mean, we have more data than any of the auction houses alone because they may have data on the few thousand customers that they do business with. I have data on over 3 million unique customers a month who come to my site who bid in multiple auction houses. I know what they're bidding on. I know what it's selling for. Uh, we've got the world's largest database of, of auction merchandise going back 20 years, 58 million records.
0: I guess the question I was trying to ask was about the comfort with bidding online, whether there was a difference between uh, live auctions and just the static online listing auctions.
2: Uh we definitely see significant bids being made online. Um I mean as of this week we sold uh we had the Graceland sale for uh for Elvis and uh we sold Elvis's uh First printed record for three hundred thousand dollars to uh, to an eBay buyer. Um, that was just this past week. It was two hundred and forty plus the buyer's premium. And so, you know, we're seeing it time and time again. That's that's one case of of literally thousands. Um, you know, we sell a nineteen fifty six Porsche Speedster. We sold I Love Lucy's polka dot dress. We sell Picasso's, Monet's. We sell. All of these things, and we do them online. Uh, you know, as long as a, a bidder, uh, is confident that they're dealing with a reputable auction house, and that's the only folks that we do business with, uh, there's a, a significant degree of confidence that, um, bidding online is as good of an experience, if not better, than showing up on auction day, um, and or certainly by, uh, via the phone. Um, there's a lot that happens on the phone, and if you think about the expense from a, Auction houses' perspective—you know—they they don't ever get into the business because they felt like the need to open up a call center. And you have some of those houses where you've got a, a one-to-one relationship between a clerk and a uh, and a bidder, and that clerk is raising a paddle on behalf of that uh, of that bidder who's who's uh, remote. It's a pretty antiquated process. Um instead uh we you know we have a single clerk who can take bids on behalf of millions of of independent consumers uh anywhere around the world without having to hang up and pick up the phone and call the next guy.
0: You mentioned trust earlier. I assume that trust is a big part of the EPI relationship where you're uh, essentially vetting or uh, vouching for the Chinese bidders.
2: Yes. What we're doing there is EPI guarantees payment by Chinese bidders. And so we really think marketplaces are around trust. And that's, that's going two ways. So the buyer has to have trust that the auction house that's selling them the merchandise is a reputable auction house that's selling them uh, real merchandise, high quality merchandise. Simultaneously, the auction house has to have confidence that the bidder is who they say they are, that they're going to pay. And so, in the case of uh, ePi Live, what ePi does is, is they uh, take payment from a bidder um, in advance of the sale, and they put that money into escrow. Uh, and then that bidder can only bid up to the amount that they have in that escrow account, and so what that does is that um it basically if if the Chinese bidder bidding via ePI Live wins that piece of merchandise, the auction house isn't getting paid by that bidder; they're getting paid by the escrow account at epi live. Um, essentially, the payment has already been made, so there's no way to the buyer's remorse or withdraw payment or do anything along those lines. That's why payment can be guaranteed.
0: I know that we've seen a number of regional auction houses hold uh, sales of Chinese ceramics that have gone through the roof, mostly because uh, two or three Chinese buyers showed up in person or uh, on the telephone. And I assume that the Epi relationship adds a, a an element of trust to make it easier for that connection to be made over a broader group.
2: Uh, yeah, that's absolutely correct. I mean, we do see Asian art and artifacts are, uh, are hot right now. Um, we are seeing um, particularly Eastern buyers buying from Western houses, uh, to use your word, repatriating uh, that art. And so you're absolutely right. there does need to be a level of trust anytime you're selling over international uh boundaries with uh different currencies and different laws uh trust is going to be a very important thing and so um you do see quite a bit of that. Is it the lion's share of my business no it's it's still a small fraction of my business, but it is um one that we see as a uh, a rapidly growing aspect of our business but for us the the benefit of the e-high live relationship was uh, again about both supply and demand um, there's plenty of western buyers buying eastern merchandise there's contemporary art there's other things that uh, are being sold uh, in asia that that are uh, highly sought after by western buyers and there's uh, and the opposite holds true as well so uh, we're seeing it go both ways.
0: I'd also like to hear about the marketing services you offer auction houses, particularly the email marketing.
2: Sure. So um, we offer a variety of marketing tools for auction houses. And to your point, one of them is email. Um, we also offer the PR. We have uh, banner advertising. We have mobile advertising. We've got a mobile app. And so we have a suite of of offerings for our auction house partners. Um, Just by the very nature of of, uh, deciding to list a sale with us, you're uploading your catalog electronically, and then we have millions of hand raisers who have said, I'm interested in being notified when a particular piece of merchandise comes up and is available for sale. So we call those our email alerts. Um, So if Uh, you're collecting Kenyan tribal dolls or Chinese snuff bottles, um, and one of those is up for sale in an auction, um, you would receive an email notification saying this is available for sale at Freemans, uh, for example. Um, So that is part of our service. In addition to that, on the email side of things, we offer exclusive emails. So if uh, an auction house wants to blast an email to our entire list of online buyers, they can do so. Um, we offer segmentation capabilities as well. So if people want to buy um, just those people who have purchased Asian art and artifacts, for example, they can do so. Um, we do quite a bit of marketing around uh, around search, so both uh, natural or organic search marketing. We do uh, paid search marketing. So we'll buy keywords uh, of merchandise that's in your sale to drive more people to uh, to the online aspect of your auction. Uh, we'll do PR around it. So uh, Colleen's team will uh, pull together press releases um, promoting uh, to specific audiences the, the upcoming sale that you may have. Then um, on the on the mobile side of things, we we have our iPad app. We do mobile advertising. So. The list goes on and on, but there's um, there's a quite a, a set of tools that we offer to auction houses to help them market. I mean, again, if you think about 10 years ago, um, you know, auction house marketing was limited to sending out a paper catalog and you know, potentially taking out an ad in, in the local newspaper. And so what we're giving these folks is global reach, um, global reach via the Internet um, that they just could not – uh, uh, possibly achieve previously.
0: And how do the auction houses pay for these marketing services? Okay.
2: So we get paid in a couple of ways. The first is that we get a um, a 5% commission. And so uh, an auction house has a choice. They can either choose to absorb that as part of their buyer's premium, and many of them do. They view it as a marketing expense. Um, we have others still who choose to add that on. Um, and so if they have a buyer's premium of 15%, they can add 5% to that and, and provide an online uh, buyer's premium of 20% pass that expense to the buyer. Um, we get paid um, for advertising services. Uh, we get paid for access to our subscription database. Uh, and we get paid for people who leverage our enterprise software. Um, we have a, a best-of-breed enterprise software package that was custom built for auction houses, um, for really for larger auction houses, and it, it sits inside um, 60 or so of the largest auction houses in the world.
0: That's really the origins of the business. That's the company invaluable evolved out of, correct?
2: We really evolved out of the database. Actually, the um, the company for for many years was called Artfact. And so it was a database business. We sold subscriptions to a auction database. Um early on in the days they had licensed um data from Sotheby's and from Christie's and they were selling that data to other auction houses who wanted to be better appraisers. Uh nowadays everybody subscribes to that data set. So um with the data is much, much broader in that it's it's fed by all of our auction house relationships. So literally thousands upon thousands of records being added to that database every single day. Um it includes high-res images, condition reports, descriptions, um, the estimated range, uh, reserve amount, who it's sold to, uh, you name it. So it, it is a very, very robust data set. Nowadays, um, not just the auction houses but the museums, so MoMA, the Smithsonian, the Guggenheim all subscribe to that data set um even the IRS subscribes to that data set.
0: And based on that strength, you attracted private equity interest, bought the company and eventually raised a great deal of money to expand in this direction of um becoming invaluable.
2: So we um relaunched as invaluable. So we we launched into the marketplace business about five years ago. Um so that was well before our our recent equity raise. Um the recent equity raise was was done in uh in may uh we raised uh thirty four million dollars uh and so the the change of directional preceded that um that was really about uh, pouring gasoline on the fire um what you see is is the company was growing at a, at a pretty astounding pace uh over hundred percent year on year And the question became, okay, well, if we raise more money and add more into sales, more into marketing, more into technology expansion, uh, knowing that eBay uh, partnership was on the verge of launching and elsewhere, um, that money was really about scaling the business.
0: And that success brought the greatest compliment, which is, the imitation where Bessemer Trust recently invested $47 million in live auctioneers to do something similar or something different from what you do?
2: You know, there there's certainly some overlap uh, between us and live auctioneers. I'd say, for me, I, I think your, your description of it as a compliment is exactly the way that I would look at it. Um, the way that I view it is, you have an industry, the traditional brick and mortar live auction industry, that's done something the same way for a thousand years. And you look at other industries, industries that have uh, been quicker to adopt technology, been quicker to uh, to embrace the internet. Um, and how they've they've leveraged that technology to evolve to gain additional exposure to acquire additional consumers to uh gain additional reach and really that 's what's happening now in the space and so it doesn't surprise me that you're seeing more and more money. Um, from VCs who uh, look for trends uh, look for trends and look to capitalize on those trends and I think uh, uh, what they're seeing here uh, is uh, it it makes a lot of sense. It's um, what they're seeing here at Invaluable, what they're seeing at Live Auctioneers and there's others in the space as well.
0: uh, Uh, Auctionada uh,
2: and Lofty. Auctionada is a client of mine. Lofty is a client of mine. Um, you know they leverage my technology and my marketplace to sell um you know, sell their merchandise, and so I view auctionada um as a online auction house is really the way I would describe them more so than a marketplace um lofty I would say that the same um but there's there's a lot of folks out there, whether it's eBay saying we wanna partner with invaluable, whether it's Amazon Art um whether it's the the recent investments in invaluable and live auctioneers um the investments by uh by christie's in in their own technology, I think what you're seeing is a broader acknowledgement that um this is an industry that's ripe for innovation um that's growing at a at an astounding record breaking pace right now uh and any time you see that happen you're gonna have Perspective investors who are going to, uh, you know, want to put some money down on the table.
0: So when venture capitalists put, say, $35 million into a company, they expect it to grow substantially from there. I mean, 10x or more. And so that raises a question, what's the path forward for you? How high is high? And how do you see yourself getting there from where you are now? Maybe not tomorrow, but, you know, next year and the year after. Right. So,
2: you know, I'd say that, um, I guess, let me divide your point into a a couple of uh, bite-sized pieces here. The first is that venture capitalists expect to see a return on their investment, and they would love to generate a return of of 10x of their investment. Um, That's a point that I I would wholeheartedly agree with. Uh, You know, investors are in the business of making investments and having those investments turn into positive outcomes, um i think your your second point there is in terms of what's the strategy then to to get there um i'd say the strategy uh i, I feel like we've cracked the code here um and what i mean by that is uh, you look at at some industries where Uh, they've attempted to disrupt. I don't view uh, what we're doing here as, as disrupting. I view what we're doing here as evolving. And what I mean by that is I don't have people on staff who are art experts. I don't have people on staff who are skilled at appraising merchandise. I don't take uh possession of merchandise, I don't ship it, I don't appraise it. Um, there are uh experts at all of these auction houses around the world that have forgotten more about those skill sets than I hope to ever know. And what we bring to the table is a an e-commerce expertise. Um, we bring to the table uh an ability to uh, expand dramatically. Expand the reach that uh, these regional and even global auction houses enjoy. Uh, you know, even if you're Sotheby's, you're looking to get to more buyers. If I say to Sotheby's, I can bring ten busloads of people to your sale, they're excited about that, uh, even if it's virtually. And so, um, for us, the strategy is. Acquire more houses, get more merchandise available for sale online, acquire more online bidders and buyers, and continue to grow both sides of the marketplace. And ultimately that um, we believe and we're very confident in this belief will will yield the types of returns that uh, the VCs would expect for their investment in this business.
0: So what I think I hear you saying is that you expect the overall marketplace for art and collectibles to expand greatly. I like to say that art is where food was, say, 30 years ago.
2: I absolutely agree with your perspective. I think, um, you know, when I describe this industry, and it's really more than the industry, it's the category. It's been very opaque. Um, There hasn't been a lot of transparency. Art has been reserved for a select few, hidden by the steel curtain, and we're bringing it out into the light. We're giving much greater exposure to individuals, which, which helps fuel appreciation, um, which helps fuel acquisition. Uh, people don't buy stuff that they've never been exposed to and don't buy stuff that they, uh, don't appreciate. And so, um, by continuing to, uh, expand the, just the number of impressions that, uh, are, that each of these pieces of art or these, each of these collectibles receives, by expanding the brands and the reach of these auction houses, you're continuing to fuel the demand side of the marketplace. And so um, it, it becomes more and more pervasive as a result.
0: Well, Rob, I think that's a perfect place to end. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us.
2: Thanks so much, Marin. I appreciate it. Have a great day.
0: Thank you for listening to the Intelligence podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com.